Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. What a time to be alive. As I stand here today, I can confidently say that we are deep in the throes of the Tori Amos renaissance. The Torissance, as it were. You don't have to look around at all the young faces on tour to know that Tori is making an incredible impact right now on worldwide media, with her music popping up in shows like Yellow Jackets and Beef, to beautiful films such as Of an Age, and this wonderful film that we will be discussing today, You Were My First Boyfriend. Written and co-directed by Cecilia Alderondo, this film thrusts her directly into the cyclone of her own teenage trauma through gripping documentary footage and incredibly poignant dramatizations, including, yes, a Tori Amos sequence that will live in infamy for the rest of our days. Available to stream right now on Max, this HBO original, You Were My First Boyfriend, is a must-watch for anyone who has ever been or ever considered being a teenager. Y'all, I couldn't be happier to have Cecilia Alderondo on the line. Cecilia is an award-winning documentary director-producer whose work has been supported by the Sundance Institute, Firelight Media, Field Division, IFP, the Jerome Foundation, and many others. She is a former Woman at Sundance fellow who was named to Doc NYC's 40 Under 40 list and has also previously received a Guggenheim Fellowship. Her third film, You Are My First Boyfriend, premiered at South by Southwest earlier this year and is now on Max as of November 8th, just a few days ago. Please welcome to our show, Cecilia Alderondo. Hi, Cecilia. Hi. How are you? Uh, I was so excited to be here. It's really, yeah, I can't even, I'm a little overwhelmed and really very, very, very honored to be in the Tory sphere with this project. It's so exciting. Hi, welcome. I'm so excited to be here with you. We are so thrilled you could make this work. We'll get into your film. We can't, we want everybody to watch this. But first, I want to tell the listeners that in this high school reunion movie turned inside out, Cecilia embarks on a fantastical quest to reconcile her tortured teen years. We've all been there. She goes back in more ways than one tracking down old foes, old friends, while also reenacting visceral memories from her youthful humiliation and desire. The influence of Tori's music in this film looms very large, and in fact, Cecilia and her wonderful sister Laura meticulously execute a shot-for-shot remake of one of Tori's most iconic music videos that is truly, truly a sight to behold. (laughs) Yes. It was very, very meticulous. (laughs) We are also lucky enough to have Cecilia's sister, Laura, on the line as well. Laura Gallegos spent half her adolescence trying to decipher Tori Amos lyrics and straddling the piano bench. She lives with her husband, two smart-ass boys, and one neurotic dog. She's a weirdo, her words, not ours, that runs for fun and works as an ER doctor in her spare time. Please also welcome Laura Gallegos. Hi, Laura. Hi, hi. This is so exciting. (laughs) Oh my God. First of all, we'll get into the film and we'll get into how, do you know that show Mortified? Do you remember Mortified? Oh yes. Love it. Yeah. I feel like this is tortified. I feel like this is um, absolutely like a comeuppance, but I want to first get into you, Cecilia, your history, your work. You're no stranger to mining your past and your family for deeply rich stories. Your first film, Memories of a Penitent Heart, 
talk to us about that and how you got into filmmaking in general. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm forever condemned to uh, find my most of my ideas for filmmaking from like very painful personal places. And, you know, that's really kind of how I started my first film was it's about my uncle or our uncle, Laura's uncle as well, who died of AIDS when we were very young. And it started because my mom found some home movies in the garage and uh, gave them to me. And this was many years after my uncle had died. And I was very curious about what had happened to him. And he was he was an openly gay man. And he went through a lot of sort of religious based bigotry in my family. And that was kind of the genesis of the first film I ever made. And in certain ways, I mean, you were my first boyfriend. This new film that we're talking about is very different it's even more first person. It's a lot more about my personal experience, but it shares a lot in that it's really going back to an unresolved and painful past and really sort of excavating these things that have not been fully figured out. So yeah, a lot of my work is about memory and unresolved memory, the painful things that we kind of, you know, are sort of too hot to handle. I feel, I don't know, drawn like a moth to a flame to these painful experiences and to make films about them, I guess. Incredible. As far as growing up, were you always a filmmaker? Were you always collecting stories? How would you describe your youth? And Laura as well, what was your observation of Cecilia? (laughs) Yeah, I would say I was always like, I had a tortured artist soul, and I was also painfully insecure. And, you know, I think I was a very sensitive, intellectual type, artsy kid, but was also really too scared to consider myself an artist for a really long time. Yeah, I want to say like my sister, Laura, who's here, actually bought me my first ever camera, which when I first decided I wanted to make Memories of a Penitent Heart, she was one of my first supporters, ardent supporters. <laughs> and so she's definitely been in my corner ever since I said, okay, I guess I'm a filmmaker now. Yeah, but I was always kind of orbiting around art, but sort of too scared to make it until I was in my mid-30s. Yeah, and I think I'm going to chime in and just say, I feel like you just summarized everything that I have witnessed about you growing up beautifully. I think you just summarized it perfectly. Your talent has just been like brewing and brewing and brewing, and it's been so cool to see it. Finally, you're allowing it to show. It's fantastic. There is one very, very moving scene in the film where Laura offers Cecilia this incredible, like, unconditional support. I just witnessed that here, right here live. (laughs) So I love it. I love the dynamic. I was lucky enough to see the film um, several months ago in a packed theater with an audience. And I just have to say, I have a ridiculous thing that happens with Tori, um, despite the fact that I, you know, co-host the show and spend a lot of time talking about her and her music with other people. I sometimes manage to forget that other people know about her. By that, I mean, it feels like such a deeply held, personal, intimate thing that I kind of still associate with my own angsty adolescence, that when there's kind of like a community experience of her and her music, it feels very exposing to me. So I knew that there was, you know, Tory content in the film. I wasn't sure how much. And I have to say that when her face came up on the screen, I started shifting uncomfortably in my seat and like gripping the sides of my chair, like no one is supposed to know about this. This feels so exposing. And I I think that was kind of my experience of the whole movie, really. Early on, there's a moment when you're directing a couple of the actors who are going to appear in one of the recreations of a moment from your life, and you refer to it as an emotional exorcism. And they respond by saying like, oh yeah, it's like really, it's like a really elaborate version of psychotherapy. And I would say that, you know, both of those things could be used to describe Tori's music as well. Um, this film is different from your earlier work, and I'm kind of wondering what brought you to this project and the way you decided to approach it. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the first thing I want to say is same. You know, like I, I think there's something in particular about Tori Amos's fandom, especially if you came of age with her as she was kind of coming of age as, a, as an artist, as she was first, first emerging. You know, I think we're probably a similar generation. You know, I think when her first album came out, what Laura and I were probably, what, 11, 12 years old, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ordering our first like Columbia catalog CDs of Tori's Little Earthquakes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's when I first discovered her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there great. is. There is something that is, I think when a musical artist has that kind of like searingly intimate personal uh, impact on you, it can feel very vulnerable to realize that other people also, There's, it's almost like, no, no, this is my private thing. And I think that that kind of particularly tender vulnerability that adolescents have, especially uh, uh, misfit adolescents have, is something that I felt like I wanted to revisit with this film. I started making this film at a time in my life when I felt like I could finally look back on that period without shame. I think that we're really conditioned to like shame our teenage selves, to be embarrassed by our younger selves. And I think I'm no stranger to that. Like I was not above that. I think I, I sort of mocked my younger self and I, like I couldn't look at photos of my younger self without going, oh my God, don't even show her to me. And so, yeah, I think that my tender, tortured adolescence is really inextricable from my relationship to Tori Amos. And this is a film that essentially, you know, as you're pointing out with that emotional exorcism line, it's like a voluntary, deliberate reliving of these excruciatingly difficult moments of coming of age. You know, it's like a, a perverse kind of exercise in saying, okay, I'm going to make myself go back there and face these things. And I'm very lucky that I was able to enlist people like my sister to join me in that. And it was really fun in a lot of ways, but I think it was also really hard. And yeah, I don't know what I wouldn't want to speak for Laura. I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah, I mean, it was really fun. I think you you had a whole team of people that were just, everybody was so on board with the whole idea and so invested and so in it. And, and it was just so fun. And they made it what could have and was a very vulnerable. And just shooting the, the whole Toriana scene was very, very awkward for me. But everybody was so excited about it and so was just having so much fun with it that it just made it a, a ton of fun. Before we get to the Tory scene, which is incredible, and I want to talk all about that, I want to address the style of the film. First of all, you use dramatic recreation, but then you also use like the creating of the recreations or the reenactments, and that's a vital part of the film, which I've never seen anyone do anything like that before. I want to talk about how you arrived at the style, the really unique and intricate style that you use to not only just go back into your own shame and your own past and shameful things that you experienced and that you also did in some instances. I want to know how you like came up with that style and like yeah. the courage also to address it all. Yeah. So one thing to note here is that I made this film with a co-director. Her name is Sarah Enid Hagee. And initially, I you know, I got the idea to make this film and I always... I was always fascinated by the idea of reenacting the past and what that might bring up. But it was really through the collaboration with Sarah. Sarah initially came on as like a writing consultant. She has a lot of experience with fiction filmmaking and 
we were introduced by a mutual friend and, and we were both very, very interested in mining the teen movie genre. The film is, is pregnant with a lot of references to adolescent media and Sarah's sort of an expert in this. So we had a pretty rich collaboration from the beginning and she ended up being so, so instrumental to the process that ended up growing into a co-director role. But through that, through my collaboration with Sarah, it was really where you know, I told her, I was like, I want to reenact these scenes. I want to really think about it as a sort of nightmarish. It's like the movie of your life, right? So that have these very stylized recreations. But it was really through collaborating with Sarah that we realized that going behind the scenes was really crucial because it's so much about the process of the reliving. If, you, if we didn't document the making of these scenes, the movie would sort of not have its heart because it was actually the undergoing, like that putting on the costumes and standing in the place I was, it's like, you know, I think about this as like a kind of time travel. If you didn't see the documentary behind the scenes of the making of, you wouldn't understand the sort of therapeutic aspects of this, the catharsis of it. Like it's incredibly triggering to force yourself to do this stuff, you know? And in particular, I will say that like the time I spent with Laura, with my sister around this Tory scene, like that was actually one of the most emotionally triggering moments, you know, Laura and I have a very beautiful relationship. We've always supported each other and loved each other, but we've also had periods of distance. And a lot of what this moment, you know, our choice to reenact a Tori Amos music video was not as a, on a lark or a joke. It was something that I wanted to really think about my relationship with my sister around. And we had a lot of stuff to unpack there. And in particular, a lot of stuff around me comparing myself to her and, and having this older sister who was similar to me in a lot of ways, but also really different. Anyway, that process of filming that scene, if we didn't document what it was like between us on set, I think you wouldn't really understand what was at stake emotionally. It's really a truly hybrid film in that way. The fictional aspects do not exist without the documentary aspects and vice versa. So yeah, it was it was a, a wild thing to do. We basically were making two movies at once, but I think it was really necessary. And what was your experience of that, Laura? I mean, I think she just said it beautifully. I mean, this is why she's the filmmaker and <laughs> I practice medicine. I do something totally different. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, so not my world. <laughs> but, you know, she's always been the, the expressive one. And so I think she said it beautifully. But I totally agree with everything she said. I mean, it's not just the music video, which was great and a lot of fun, but also everything behind that day was really intense really, really intense. We had a lot of really deep emotional conversations and, and a lot of that's really beautiful stuff to explore. And it really is the heart of the movie. Let's get into the Tory scene. So first of all, this film is such a delight. I had such a good time watching this film because I, like David, you know, he feels exposed when anyone mentions Tory, like in public. I'm like, yes, I feel seen, please. And there's this whole Tory <laughs> sequence, but there's also this my so-called life sequence that made me yes. feel exposed. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Oh, interesting. Yes. This recreation creation down to the wigs down to like so the, the shot where she's looking up at Jordan I was like oh my god this is it's my so life 
masterful yeah. work this is. So everybody, you'll really enjoy watching it. Talking about my, the my so-called life scene, you mentioned time travel. And watching the film, there's definitely an experience of being transported. And I think particularly for people in our generation, it all feels very familiar. And I'm kind of just curious, there are all kinds of references. You talk about Yellow Leadbetter by Pearl Jam in the film. Were there any other artists in the running whose work was as meaningful to you that you wanted to include or because of what Tori meant to you and Laura? Did you always know that that was the thing and that Tori really had to be a big part of this? Yeah, that, the latter, <laughs> for sure. Okay. Tori, I mean, there are a lot of musicians that I think we shared. I mean, Indigo Girls, I would say maybe the second, the runner-up or something like mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Uh, Laura and I are only 15 months apart, um, and we have three other siblings. We come from like a big, noisy family, and music, I think, was something that we shared among us as siblings. But Tori is the glue that brought us together as sisters. You know, we went to see Tori in concert together. We've shared her music. Like Laura would practice Tori at the piano. I mean, I have this particular, sorry, Laura, I'm going to out you, but this is one of my favorite memories of Laura was walking in on her in the living room, (laughs) straddling the piano bench, like when nobody was looking, (laughs) trying to do her Tori stance you know, it, it was something that like at a time when, when Laura and I were kind of growing apart, Laura, in my mind, was getting popular and had all these friends and had a boyfriend and was like out and about. And I was like retreating into my tortured, self-hating, cranky kind of, you know, I was like hiding from the world more and more. Tori was something that brought us together. And so when I was planning the film, I was going back and thinking, okay, what are some of the most seminal memories or moments or touchstones that are like rich enough that enable me to kind of really unpack some of the key aspects of adolescent pain, unresolved adolescent pain. And, you know, I think sometimes sibling rivalries or sibling jealousies um, distance that you might have once you hit your teen years with your siblings, that that was something I wanted to look at. And I don't even know how it happened. It was just literally, I was thinking about like, what things do I want to address in this film? And Tori immediately came up. And I still to this day do not remember how I got the idea to reenact the Crucify video, but I remember watching it again for the first time in probably years. And I was like, this is wild. This video offers so much to play with. And I just couldn't stop laughing to myself at the idea of the both of us getting to be our heroine for the first time, getting to sort of cosplay as Tori. So yeah, I I, I, I don't remember Laura even when I, when did I first ask you to do this? Oh God, I'm sitting here trying to remember and, and putting myself in that moment of when you first proposed this idea to me which was absolutely ludicrous. And you trying to explain that was like, wait, I'm sorry, what do you want to do? And wait, what are you asking? (laughs) Oh my God. And I remember watching the Crucify video with you as you were telling me, okay, look, this is what I'm thinking. You can be this Tori and I'll be this Tori and you'll be this. (laughs) And it's going to be so great. Oh God. And I was like, oh, this could either be really great or really, really bad. (laughs) 
I think that the reason it works so well is that it is so it is so ludicrous. It is such a ludicrous idea <laughs> that it it just works. It brings such joy to my heart to see you like it. You did you inhabited those waitresses. You inhabited them. Yeah. It was it was identical. It's not even cosplay where you're just like mimicking. It was you were in it. You were mm. in it. Yeah. Can I speak yeah. to that? Because we we really. I adopted a principle when we were doing this that I decided to call Civil War Reenactor Realness, uh, which is, I don't know how familiar you are with Civil War Reenactors. Like, their politics aside, like, there's definitely a lot of problems with Civil War Reenactments. But the degree of fidelity that some reenactors have to their practice, to what they do, is so incredible and so obsessive. And that was kind of my standard. When we decided to do this Tori Amos video, you know, it is very much an homage. It's very much like we, we were very aware that we wanted to do this in a respectful way. And part of the way to be respectful of Tori Amos and her artistry was fidelity. And so every single shot in that video, every single detail in the wardrobe, we were obsessed. We were, we were like, you can ask my production designer and my cinematographer, like everybody, I mean, the costume designer had to remake several Tory costumes because I said that they weren't good enough. Like it was so ridiculous, the level of detail. We haven't yet, we haven't actually had a chance to do a side-by-side -side comparison. I'm really excited to see that. But we, every shot is the same. There are some camera angles that are a little different, but it was really important. And also because I just want to say one other thing is that the only thing that's really supposed to be different in these videos is us. And that is on purpose because a lot of what this film is also exploring is beauty standards and self-esteem. And part of what this particular scene is looking at is what does it mean to be a young woman of color coming up in this time and falling in love with a standard of beauty that Tori must represents that is completely unattainable. And so part of this too is about me and my sister never being able to be Tori Amos. It's both like us wanting to step in the shoes of our heroine and also recognizing how it can really screw with your head to wish that you could look like somebody who you'll never, ever, ever be able to measure up to. So we are the kind of joke of it all in a way. Um, <laughs> we're not Tori and that's sort of the point. <laughs> it never occurred to me because we are we are homosexual boys growing up, having the same experience that you did, but just in male-identified bodies. So I'm interested in David, in your experience of watching and hearing that. Yeah, there's a sequence in the movie where you guys are kind of preparing to shoot the video where you're talking about Tori's alabaster skin and her green eyes, and you seem to really be thinking through your relationship to Tori's whiteness, and you mentioned standard of beauty, a standard of beauty that she embodies. Let's, let's play the clip, David. Why am I doing this to myself? Honestly, this is like how I feel. Like, I have spent my whole mm -hmm. life comparing myself to the wrong people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm literally forcing myself to do that all over again. I look at her and I look at me and I look at her and I look at me and I'm like, why do I have to fall in love with her? Why couldn't I fall in love with somebody who looks like me? You know? There was nobody. There was nobody. There was nobody. Like the there was nobody. I know, but this yeah. is what's so fucked is I'm like, is this an homage or is this like, 
a trauma exercise. The thing is, like, you are gorgeous. Like, I'm just the wrong kind of pretty. Maybe I'm naively really struck by that because of my positionality. And I guess I always had a very different experience of Tori and her image and related to her differently. Um, she's unquestionably striking, I would say, but I always found her beauty to be like really unconventional and her work and image being really subversive, especially for the time. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that scene and everything that was coming up for you both around your relationship to this woman and her work and kind of, yeah, all of it. <laughs> I agree. I think Tori uh, and her particular kind of beauty does represent something unconventional. I also particularly always really loved how theatrical she is in her aesthetic and her embrace of, I don't know, things like makeup. And, you know, she's not known for being the most like, you know, she's no Patti Smith in terms of like her level of um, naturalness, you know, and that's actually something I love about her. Like she's over the top and she adopts all these different looks and identities. And I distinctly remember loving that about her. There's a kind of almost like a drag opportunity there where she's taking on all these different personas and looks. So I think that's part of what I personally found really exciting about her. And yet, I think that part of what we're trying to unpack with this, well, there's two things I want to unpack in this. On the one hand, part of it has to do with the insidiousness. Like, it's very unrealistic to ask a teenager to understand the racism around them. (laughs) And, you know, we grew up in a very sort of assimilated way as Puerto Rican girls who we had a very strong sense of our culture in, in our home, but also we grew up in a very largely white suburban context where there wasn't a lot of empowerment around beauty standards at that time. There weren't like you know, if you're a feeling like a misfit, you will look to pop culture and other places to feel good about yourself. Like there weren't any other kind of other alternatives. And so I think part of what the film is trying to unpack is how do you end up both loving somebody who will help you feel less alone and help you love yourself and also in a weird way, maybe make you hate yourself a little more because you're never going to be able to be like them. And how are we cheating people, young people in particular, if they don't have people to look up to who make them feel beautiful because of how they already look. And then the other thing I want to say is this, again, it's about sibling rivalry. And, you know, I was really unfair to Laura in many ways. And this is part of what, you know, we're trying to unpack in the film. And one of it was just constantly comparing myself to her. You know, I weighed more than her. I was darker skinned than her. My hair texture was a little different. And I think that that is also part of why we chose this particular video, because you have these moments of duality where you have these sort of twins standing next to each other. And it's really trying to unpack that kind of sibling comparison. But I don't want to speak for Laura. I know that this is part of what I was asking Laura to look at with me is the way in which we, you know, I compared myself to her and projected Mm -hmm. stuff onto her. Yeah, I mean... I think that one of the things that we, and me specifically, one of the things that I loved about Tori was her unconventional beauty. Her whole unconventional is because she was unconventional. That's what drew me to her in the first place. I think because I felt and knew that I was somehow different 
from other people. And that's what made me obsess about her originally. But at the same time, you know exactly what Cecilia is saying, that she's different, but she also has this image that is impossible for us to attain. And for me, it wasn't just the physical attributes that it were impossible to attain, but as someone who really loved playing the piano, she played a piano that was just impossible, a level that was impossible to attain for me too. I'd be sitting there trying to master the stance on the on the piano bench, the straddle, because there was no way I was going to master, you know, the actual playing of the piano. I I just I was never going to be anywhere near that good. And that was impo- it was so impossibly frustrating and so, you know, to be frank, I think I probably stopped playing piano after a while. I was like, I give up. I just give up. I'm never going to be like that. But yeah, I mean, trying to bring all that to even, you know, even for the film, she was like, you can just learn to play the songs for the video, right? And I was like, I've been trying to play this song since I was, what, 14, 15? It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. I'll just pretend. You did master the stance when you're in that like crush velvet wrap around the neck jumpsuit, whatever that oh my gosh, is, that, that jumper. Was amazing. That was the costume was my favorite. Oh my god, they're so good! Shout out to Angela Barrow and Aubrey Hess, costumer and assistant costume designer on the film. All of the costumes were so great, and I'm glad you sent the bad ones back and got the good ones back. You know, I'm glad you made those changes because they <laughs> oh, were yeah. on point. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The collar had to be exactly right. The that collar. Like, rubber collar thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, this is not right. When you it. take that step, Cecilia, into the bathtub. Oh, my God. And you grab the, like, rim of the bathtub. <laughs> I'm like, we're in good hands here. Yeah. <laughs> and I just want to give a little bit of behind-the-scenes context. I had broken my ankle earlier that mm-hmm. year. <gasps> I was mm-hmm. freshly recovered. And I almost broke it again. Like, <laughs> I thought for sure. I, was, I thought for sure she's going to break her ankle again. Here we go. She's going to do it. Yeah. So, yes, thank you for noticing because that was a real struggle. It was a real struggle. All of everything that you just said really resonated with me. You're talking about feeling like a misfit in your Puerto Rican household. And even though I didn't realize it at the time, I realize now, like literally in this moment, looking back that as a misfit Mexican gay boy, that I had no idea that I wasn't able to embody the sensuality that Toriamis expressed. I felt like I understood the music so deeply to my core that I felt like I was her. I understood <laughs> that I could be as beautiful and as empowered. And and if you'd have asked me back then, I probably would have agreed that I was white as well. Whatever that meant to me, it meant loved, accepted, beautiful. I just felt like I could take that all in and it mm. just shaped who I am. It like had the most profound effect on shaping who I am more than anything else, mm. her music. So I want to get into this idea. There was a time when even though Tori's always been sort of on the outside, there was a time when liking Tori was really cool because you were on the outside, but in a cool way. And mm-hmm. then it became uncool. And now it's like resurfacing as people like you, Cecilia, are making these incredible films. There's also another film that I watched recently earlier this year called Of an Age, where there's a whole Tori sequence and they're talking about the B-sides and cooling. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. like <laughs> we have arrived. So yeah. it, like it's come full circle. I want to hear how it feels to be part of that movement or how you feel um, when you see Tori Amos in public space. Well, one of the things that's been very surprising and and actually incredible and is just, I think, starting is meeting people who have been in Tori's corner unreservedly 
through thick and thin with every album, every tour, every show even. Like I've met these incredible Tory loyalists that I personally feel, and I think Laura, you feel similarly, like we feel like fair weather fans. Like we feel like that we were those people who like were really passionate about our first few albums and then kind of disappeared and our uh, I mean I think making this film has really helped me get reacquainted with my fandom and really and I think this is also part of what the film is trying to do is to reclaim forms of media and like and actually just forms of attachment like things that we've gravitated towards that become kind of in adulthood thought of as cringeworthy um, I've just realized it took making this film to realize like how many times in my younger adulthood I felt like I had to hide my Tory fandom. Like it, like as you're saying, it wasn't cool. And I had these very often these pockets of friends that we would like sort of confess to each other how much we loved Tory. And so I think this is also something that we are conditioned to do is to kind of disavow our youthful attachments as a consequence of growing older. And I feel like, <laughs> you know, I want to say here and now, like, apologies to Tori. I feel like I abandoned her at a certain moment. And I just have a lot of admiration for people who have really been more committed in their love of her, because I think that there's something to be said for knowing what you love and sticking with it. And this is very much a movie about what it means to like celebrate being a weirdo and not being part of the mainstream. So yeah, I I think I learned a lot through this process of what it means to celebrate and hang on to your idols. I think it ended up being a reparative experience for me on that front as well. I was able to push through the anxiety of this being experienced in community and kind of embrace my weirdness with like-minded people, I think. So I really appreciate that. (laughs) I want to ask a little bit more about the video shoot portion itself. And I really appreciate what you said about duality and kind of playing out your sibling rivalry, because I was wondering how you specifically chose Crucify. And obviously, like you're right, it so lends itself to exactly what you described with the multiple Tories or the two Tories. Was there ever any other choice? Did you consider rolling around in a box and doing silent all these years or anything like that? Nope. It was just too perfect. It's too perfect. I mean, part of it is, you know, Crucify is one of those indelible breakouts. So songs. iconic. Mm. Yeah, it's very iconic. It's like alongside Cornflake Girl, you know, this is definitely one of the best known tracks, but also you know, the video is just so perfect for this. And it's also from her first album. It was like, this was the beginning of our, it was the nexus point in our relationship. It was where it all kind of began. But like even the lyrics also, the lyrics are so appropriate for thinking about what it means to put yourself through suffering. Why do we crucify ourselves? You know, this is a scene that's all about getting in your own way and being cruel to yourself um, and that kind of self-flagellation that a lot of young teenagers, they really, you know, we really do a number on ourselves. So yeah, it just was always too perfect. Well, the finished product is truly, truly uncanny with how spot on it is. And, you know, as someone who has tried maybe a couple times to learn choreography by just like watching something several times, it has never worked for me. So really kudos to both of you, but especially you, Laura. I want to know more about like how you got it so spot on. It's really remarkable. (laughs) 
Oh my God, we've already talked about that. I've been practicing that piano bench straddle, you know, since I was like 13 years old. So I've had plenty of time to work on it. <laughs> it just felt very natural. I was like, oh yeah, I've been doing this my whole life. I'm sitting in my desk chair like that right now. Right? Exactly. I know. Yeah. <laughs> like it just feels right, doesn't it? <laughs> I also think David's a piano player. And is the sheet music in the book, like, is that crucified sheet music correct, David? Do you Absolutely know? not. I don't think any no of them are way. correct. Yeah. So go easy, <laughs> no way. go easy on yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I want oh, to yeah. say something on Laura's behalf too, because Laura is nothing if not humble. And this is one of the things that I, you know, I just want, there are not enough kudos in the world to give to my sister or flowers to give her for doing this, because I do think this was sort of your worst nightmare. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Putting yourself out there in this way. (laughs) Like Laura's by default, like not a ham or performer, like, you know, generally likes to be more in the background. And so asking her to do this was a huge tall order. But I also knew that there was a side of her that the world doesn't usually get to see, which is the side of her that I knew as a teenage girl, like alone in her bedrooms. And this in many ways is that it's like, if you're a teenager in your bedroom, that suddenly gets a budget to do something really ridiculous. (laughs) There's an element of like play here where we're getting to, there's a wish fulfillment in doing this video. But I just want to say like, Laura was so nervous when we went to shoot this and she was convinced that she couldn't do it. And as soon as we started rolling, I think it was probably a combination of the outfit and the makeup and the hair, but there was also something that just kind of came unleashed and she was just slaying it. Like you were just so present and so in your skin and selling it. And I just, it was, everybody on set was just kind of blown away by the way you showed up. Well, we'll we'll say as long as we're throwing kudos around, I mean, what made me feel so comfortable too was the whole team you had assembled there. Every single human who was on that set was kind and gentle with me. (laughs) And like, just, you know, just made me feel very, very comfortable. Brennan, your DP, you know, is just like the sweetest, most calming person and was very supportive. And I, I just felt safe there. So then I could just say, fuck it. Okay, fine. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And there's also just something to be said for surrendering. I mean, it, it was really embarrassing. I will say like, it's still hard for me to look at the side-by-side image of myself next to my sister, who's still skinnier than me and always will be like, it's really <laughs> confronting, you know, and as much as I love making films, I like being behind the camera, not in front of it. It was really fun, but also it was really challenging. And that I think is why what happens behind the scenes, it's very authentic. Like it brought up a lot of stuff for both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I also just touch for a minute on the amazing, the attention to detail. We kind of talked about it for a minute, but I just thought of an example of the detail, the care you took to make sure everything was perfect. That piano, that Bosendorfer piano was just such a moment. We remember we were so excited when that thing arrived on set and we were like, because we knew it couldn't be a Yamaha. It couldn't be something that had to be Tori's piano. It was such a delight to be able to sit there on that instrument. Oh man, that was so cool. Well, and, and, and I just want to say this is like for the real diehard Tory nerds out there, like in the original video, she is playing a Bosendorfer, but it doesn't say Bosendorfer on the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We basically 
we worked out a thing with Bosendorfer. They gave us the piano for free. <gasps> and it's a sort of like Bosendorfer product placement, but it says Bosendorfer like emblazoned on the side. Yes, and right on the front. It, yeah, and it's <laughs> yeah. not what it looks like in the original video. And at first I was like, oh my God, this is too obvious. It's, it's not right. It's not authentic. And then I was like, no, 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 this is an Easter egg for Tory fans. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. I'm glad that you're talking logistically because we've never worked with Downtown Publishing yet. Did you have to license the video separately from the song? No, we licensed the song and I think we were able to do the video under a fair use. So I don't know how familiar you are with fair use doctrine. Oh, yeah. That's where our entire podcast lives, honey, under fair use. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> Gotta love it. Support people's rights to borrow and recontextualize. Yeah. So this qualifies as a transformative use of the video. And so we did not license video, but we did license the song. And, um, you know, to this day, we are still waiting to hear if Tori has ever seen the film. We do not think she has yet. She is definitely aware because we made a point of securing her blessing through her people. Like, we did not want to do this without her at least awareness that we were going to shoot this video. Yeah. But we're still in the process of trying to get the actual finished product to her. So if you have any ideas, please, please let us know. For us, the greatest gift in the world would be just to know that she watched it and that we have her blessing. I mean, we know we have her blessing technically, but we would love to know what she thinks of it all because it was done with real, real respect and love. Oh, yeah. I think she's going to really enjoy it. I think she'll find it hysterical. And especially the moment before, like the vulnerability and the bravery that you show with your sister, like literally going through the humiliation of your past. And I actually wrote this down. This didn't happen at that moment, but you said when you don't know any better humiliation can feel a lot like love and man i had that's yeah. the only time i had to pause the film and like really write that down that felt so profound to me when you don't know any better humiliation can feel a lot like love mm -hmm. and it took me back the whole film you were my first boyfriend took me back to my first crush my first all-encompassing crush his name was adam o'neill and he Probably, I mean, he knew I existed because I was awkward and like every time I, I feel like he must have known that I existed because every time he walked by, I was trying to play it cool. Just let's play it cool. And it was very <laughs> not cool. So he had to have known. But when you sit down with your first crush and he's like, I had literally no idea. It revealed to me how much can live inside of your your own head about just how you're engaging with the world but also like how much of your interior life is just for you mm -hmm. and that that was surprising to me that he didn't have any idea because I, I would assume that Adam O'Neill like knew that I was driving by his house when I was 16 like ducking in the passenger seat when my friend Melissa drove by like I developed my the way <laughs> I walked was because he had this like weird inner bow on his leg that I did the same thing so I feel like I mean it was a, re it was a revelatory moment <laughs> in your film and Kudos to you. Profound film. Everybody must watch it on Max. Available right now. You Were My First Boyfriend, written and co-directed by Cecilia Alderondo. And we have a game. David? <laughs> David and I have developed our alter ego game show hosts. Even though he's been canceled, I am still Chuck Woolereef. And <laughs> David, you are? Tom Bridger Anderson. Yes. All right. <laughs> And we're back for another episode of Wait, Wait, Don't Tore Me. <laughs> David will explain the rules for this round. 
I just slipped into the skin of Tom Bergeron-Anderson, even though it's been so long. Yes. So in the interest of sibling rivalry, Cecilia and Laura, we were wondering if we could pit you two against each other for three quick rounds of Wait, Wait, Don't Tour Me. And we're going to ask you to kind of buzz in or ding in if you think you know the answer or if you know the answer. (laughs) Your uh, opponent will have the chance to steal if you get it wrong. Okay? Okay. All right. So category one is every finger in the room is pointing at you. This category has questions pertaining to all things crucify. Okay. I'm sorry. Just as a side note, I get so delighted when David starts a game because he built this game (laughs) from the ground up. He's like so excited. Okay. Hit it, David. Okay. Question one. This frequent visual collaborator directed the music video for all of the singles released from Little Earthquakes, including Crucify. Okay, Man. here's the thing. We're totally going to fail all of these trivia questions. I just want to know. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I just know. This is a, we're both going to be exposed as a Fairweather fan. Yeah, I know. Although, although I will say, I still downstairs, I have a VHS tape of a compilation of her music videos and Crucifies in there. And I'm sure all the credits are on there. So I just yeah. need, just give me a minute. I'll run downstairs and grab it. No, and I, and That's I will right. Say, it's Cindy Palmano. <laughs> I will say, yeah, but do not, yeah, what's her name? Cindy Palmano. Knew that. This is the thing. Knew that. And, you know, came up in my research. And I believe that one of the things I came across in my research for this video was that <laughs> apparently what I read was that uh, she directed all of the moody moments, like the sort of Elizabethan, the bathtub. All of the more kind of atmosphere, the Tory that I get to be, that was her vision. And then what I read, and I don't know if this is correct or not. You can tell me if I'm, this is apocryphal, maybe not right. But that the, apparently the label didn't think that it was poppy enough. And so they had her shoot the Tory at the piano, which is a lot sexier and more uh, upbeat. And then they had mm. to cut those together. So it was like her vision yeah. was undermined. Mm. Is this true? Yeah, that is true. She didn't direct those piano parts, though. They sent that to a different director. Right. So it's actually mm-hmm. a different mm-hmm. director on the piano section. And she, Cindy Palmona was really, uh, you know, kind of annoyed about that, obviously, because she mm-hmm. right. she'd really crafted yeah. with Tori the image up to that point. But yeah, trash. Yeah. Atlantic yeah. is trash. Justice for Cindy. <laughs> exactly. Cindy. Question two. The Crucify EP released in the United States included three cover songs, most notably Tori's haunting rendition of what song? Oh, God. Nothing oh, God. Haunting rendition. Yes. Who said that? Thanks, Laura. <laughs> Give me the point. Yay. You got it. <laughs> ah, okay. Yes. I'm on the board. <laughs> You're on the board. You're on the board. Number three, David. All right. This might be a little bit of a toughie, but we'll see what we can do. Question three. Tori's best friend, who is mentioned in several lyrics and several songs throughout her catalog, provided backing vocals on Crucify. Name that best friend. God. Oh. Oh. Um, <laughs> wait, Mary Nickname. I know. I know who it is. Oh. Can we get a hint? No. It's on the tip of my tongue. God damn it. Tallulah! <laughs> <laughs> yes, her childhood best friend, Tallulah. <laughs> Are you talking about, I don't know if it's her best friend, but it's a dude, right? It's the guy who is a, a singer for some other band. Trent Reznor? Oh, Maynard from Tool. No, 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 not Trent Reznor. Not <laughs> Trent Reznor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Tool guy. guy. Is it him? It is not Tool. It is Beanie. Her name is Beanie. Her oh. full name is Nancy Shanks. Oh. 
Oh, I mean, son of a <laughs> You're really exposing the shallowness of my research. I know. I'm feeling very, exactly. very <laughs> exposed as a director right now. Every time, though, you know what? Every time we do pub trivia or any kind of Tory trivia contest, you could be a lifelong, like, diehard fan. And David's questions, honestly, <laughs> they are deep. These are deep. Yes. We got an easy one for you. If you're going to start your own religion, make sure you've got enough of this. Oh my god, wait, oh god, now I'm getting, wait, wait, I have to sing it in my head. <laughs> got up, go, go, go! That was Cecilia. We are tied. We were both raised Catholic, both went to Catholic school. Shame on oh us. Oh my god, shame, shame, shame. shame. We know guilt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got us a real game now after round one. You each have one point. <laughs> Whoa. Round two, the atrocities of school I can forgive, but I will never forget. <laughs> this category deals with the middle school and high school trauma in Tory songs. Oh, wow. Question one. In Precious Things, no one dared, no one cared to tell an arguably overdressed Tory where the pretty girls were. What was Tory wearing? Do you remember? Oh, God. Wait, 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 wait. Um, no one cared to tell me where the pretty girls when nine minutes, the, wait, oh, no, no, panties, no, um, maybe, but just inside the heart of every nice girl, something like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> little we will accept little fascist panties, but it was peach party dress we were looking for. Yeah. <laughs> what was the, yeah. what was it? Yes, peach party dress. Yeah, she was wearing something over her panties. Right? Party dress. <laughs> Oh, they're wearing fascist panties. Wait, I don't even remember. Oh my god! But you know, as we discuss in your, as you discuss in your film, wanting to be align yourself with these awful people instead of accepting the people in your life, exactly. she probably herself was wearing little fascist panties underneath. Probably that. It's, it's Stockholm mm-hmm. syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> Hit it, David. All right, so we we got a point for little fascist panties. <laughs> I think I deserve that point. Do it. Little fascist pointies. Okay, who is that? Yes, we'll give Cecilia the point. That was Cecilia. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wonderful. Question two. This grade school crush collected bees, might be a B-side, and hammers. He even used one on Tori. His name was what? Oh, God. No. This this is not going to (laughs) happen. I mean, I know he was a beekeeper. Are you talking about, (laughs) is this from Honey? Sugar, close, close. yeah, yeah. But he gave me yeah. sugar. I know that part. Mm, I don't think I'm gonna pull this one out. Bobby. Bobby. The answer we were looking for was Bobby. <laughs> Bobby's collecting bees. Yes. <laughs> yes. Third and final question: If you're not a cornflake girl, you're probably hanging with who? Oh shit! The raisin girl. Uh, the raisin girl. Oh, oh Laura got that. Oh, okay, yes. Laura. Ah! Fine, fine, Laura. I'll give it to Laura. I heard Laura first, so we're tied. We're tied at two points each going into the third and final round. Really stressful. All right, well, it all comes down to this then. Category three is the camera is rolling. These questions are about Tori in film and television. Oh, wow. (laughs) Question one The most recent season of this hit Showtime series. Yellow Jacket. Yes. Wow. Fine. You get it. That was Cecilia. It was. We got her category. We are in her zone. (laughs) 
<laughs> a remix of Boys for Pele's Tallulah was inexplicably Twister. included. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We Boys literally just watched Tallulah, that yeah. movie too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question three. Tori appears on screen as a big band singer crooning her way through two standards in this 2003 film starring Julia Roberts. What? Wait, this what? is this uh, sound familiar at all escape, to me. That is this escape my vision. 2003, Julia Roberts. Kirsten Dunst, Maggie Gyllenhaal. We'll give you the titles of the songs. You Belong to Me and Murder, he says. I don't think that's going to help. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Mona Lisa Smile. Oh, what? yes. <laughs> what? Well, I mean... I never saw that movie. Well, now I'm going to go see you, it. She's in it. Oh, my God. Like, looking back on her, she looks, like, very elegant and classy looking back on mm-hmm. her. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Final question. In 1995, Tori contributed two songs to the soundtrack for this John Singleton film, including a cover of R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, was it Boys in the Hood? No. Uh, Higher learning. Oh, that makes more sense. <laughs> I was going to say like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Tori, that was, yeah. <laughs> well, we've come to the end of our game. And at the end of our game, Cecilia has four points and Laura has two. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. You're never going to live that down. I'm going to remind you of this for the rest of our lives. Listen, yeah. yellow jackets, we said that at the same time. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's a tie. I still win. Still win. Still win. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, it's been such a delight having you on the show. Everybody, please check out You Were My First Boyfriend on Max, an HBO original. What is your next project? I watched Picket Line, by the way, and I'm about to watch Landfall today. And, like, they're so diverse, your projects. There's only this one and the first one that seem really, like, about your life and your family. I want to know what your next project is or what your what your plan is, Cecilia. Well, um, this movie definitely gave me a little bit of the fiction bug. Uh, and so I'm actually writing my first fiction screenplay so um yeah I, that's Gasp. all i can say about it right now because i don't want to jinx it but uh yeah yes. yeah of course stay tuned for more fictional stuff I, in which i do not plan to be on screen do why not, not? <laughs> you're so delightful to watch you're so raw and honest and i'm telling you as angela chase perfect casting perfect wig yeah perfect yeah <laughs> You know, I respect actors too much to try and keep doing it, but uh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Thank you for being on the show. Everybody, check out You Were My First Boyfriend. It's available now on Max. You can go watch it right now. And thank you so much to the both of you for being on our show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So much fun. fun. Thank you. Life to be realized. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you both so much. (laughs) Love you guys. Thank you for doing this. I want to spit in the face of. Get a breath that could bring Got a rolling ball in my stomach Got a desert in my mouth Figures that my courage would choose To self-love now I've been looking for a savior In these dirty streets Looking for a savior Beneath these dirty sheets I've been raising up my hands Stop another nail what God needs One more victim Why do we Crucify ourselves Every day I 
Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoryamis.com.